If you have a Bible, find Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Back on October the 14th, we began a series of sermons on the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says here in Matthew 6, starting in verse 9, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Last week, we interrupted the series um, with a wonderful interruption, uh, baptism. And this week, we pick back up with verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's interesting in this prayer that Jesus gave us in the second part of the prayer, when we turn toward our own needs, it starts at the beginning with the basic needs, food and forgiveness. Now, I'm I'm convinced that you're convinced that food is necessary. But are you convinced... That forgiveness is necessary. Are you convinced that as much as your body needs and longs for food. Your soul needs and longs for forgiveness. And that the absence of food for your body. Which you know will mean the death of your body. Are you as convinced that the absence of forgiveness will mean the death of your soul. You see, I'm making a claim about reality when I say that the prayer begins with basic needs. I am saying that forgiveness is as basic of a need as food. Do you really believe that? Do you hate sin? Do you fear sin? Do you flee from it? Well, in a group this size, and not just objectively speaking, because I know you. Some of you do, and some of you don't. Some of us hate and fret and worry over sin, and some of us barely give our sins a second thought. Some people are overwhelmed by their sins. There are those among us who go to bed at night worried over their sin. And there are those among us who can't remember the last time we were worried about our sins. I want to talk to both groups this morning. First, to the group that doesn't give sin much time in your psychological and mental space. At the center of the Christian Bible... The four Gospels describe the pains that God has taken to defeat sin. Christians have always measured sin by the suffering needed to atone for it. 
the ripping and writhing of a body on a cross. This bizarre metaphysical maneuver of using death to defeat death. The urgent call for us to ally ally ourselves to Christ and his violent death and to make that the center of our life. Christians have always said that is the only way to properly understand the reality of sin. Think about how this means that at the heart of Christianity is the claim that the main problem with you and me is not lack of education, it's not poverty, it is sin. That this is the main problem. All of us sin. And that our sin is the issue. And it's not easy to deal with. That our sin is a desperately difficult problem to fix. Even for God. That's the Christian claim. That the fix of sin isn't even easy for God. But he's done it. He's dealt with it. Look, listen again to our passage from Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. This is what sin does to you. It kills you. God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now notice the next phrase. Notice what God had to do in order to secure our release from our sins. He set our sins aside. How? By sweeping them under the rug? No. By nailing them to the cross. Even God himself can't sweep sin under a rug. And he didn't. The bloody, brutal, inconvenient cross at the center of Scripture. This is how God deals with sin. And then look what it says. In doing this, he disarmed the powers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ on the cross. The price God paid to cancel your debt of sin was the ripping and writhing of his son on the cross. Now, imagine with me this group of 12 guys that are following Jesus around the dusty paths of Palestine. They've noticed Jesus at prayer. They've realized by seeing Jesus at prayer that they don't know how to pray. And so they've asked Jesus to teach them. And so he does. And first he clears the ground. Right? In verse 5, don't do this. In verse 6, do it this way. In verse 7 and 8, don't do this. And then, in verse 9, he gives his followers, and he gives you and me, one of the most precious gifts that the creator of the universe has ever given. Some would say it dwarfs the Alps. Some would say it's deeper than the ocean. He gives us a prayer that he gives to us that can become our prayer. Our Father in heaven, 
Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice how the prayer starts Godward, right? It starts focused on God's name and God's kingdom and God's will. And then the second half of the prayer turns its attention to us and our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. What a gift. Do you know how much a gift that line in the prayer is? I know. This morning, I got up at 4.30. And I'm praying they are Father. And when I get to this line, you know what my prayer is? God, I need today the things I need to do today. And for today, what I need is I've got to set the chairs up in the church building and I've got to finish my sermon. I need you to give this to me today. Because this is what I need to do today. The life you've given me. What a gift that every day I've got that. That whatever I'm facing in any day, I can turn to my father and say, give me this day what I need to live this day. What a gift. I was so thankful for that this morning at 4.30. But think about what comes next. Can you imagine? Can you see in your imagination Jesus, the robes, the beards, whatever you see? 2,000 years ago? I wonder if there was a hitch in his voice before this next phrase. Just 13 words in the original Greek. I read it this morning in Greek, less than four seconds at a moderate clip. It's done. Did the disciples on that day have any idea the price that Jesus was, was going to pay so that they could pray these next words? Did the whole cosmos know that the whole cosmos would be ripped apart so that we could pray these next words? Do you think the angels in heaven who knew what was coming shuddered? Do you think anybody around him had any idea the price he would pray so that these words actually worked and they weren't just whistling in the air? Did the disciples on that day have any idea of the ocean of love it took to make these next words work? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Did anybody know that the price was this? You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us by nailing his son to the cross. Can you see him looking at his followers on that day 2,000 years ago? He knew what Peter was going to do. Right? And so he gave Peter this prayer before he ever knew he needed it. And he knew what he was going to have to do so that when Peter did pray this prayer, it worked. Can you see him looking at you today? Knowing what you did yesterday. And giving you this prayer. Can you see him looking down through time from that mountain when he gives his prayer to his disciples? Knowing that what comes next was the ripping and writhing of the cross. And that even though you have embraced that into your life, 
you were still going to trample on it. And yet he gave you the prayer and he gave himself to the cross. Without food, you will die. Without his forgiveness, you will perish. And God will stop at nothing to rescue you from the hell you deserved. That's what this prayer means. Some people think when it comes to forgiveness, you just forget that the bad thing happened. At best, that's a low-grade parody. We know we are doing wrong. We don't want to do it and still we do it. And each of those sins, each of those choices forges a link in a chain that binds us. Sin has a thousand faces. The face of your sin might look very different than the face of my sin. The Bible is no Pollyanna picture of this reality. It says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. The truth is that your heart and my heart is a sinful stubbornness. But here's the good news of the prayer. Your sinful stubbornness is not as stubborn as the grace of God. And it is not half so persistent and not half so ready to suffer in order to win its way. You think you're willing to suffer to get your way? You're not half so willing to suffer as Jesus was to make this prayer work. As painful as it is for you to face your sin and to bring it to your remembrance and to ask God for his forgiveness, it is not half so painful as it was for Christ to secure the forgiveness that he offers you. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. When it comes to your sin, do not retreat into the private world of your own kind of living. Don't pretend it didn't happen. If you don't regularly think about and face up to the brutal reality of your sin, it might be a pleasant way to live, but it is as devastating as forgetting to eat. Forgetting about your sin It's like being under the influence of a spiritual narcotic, ignoring your sin. It is tranquilizing and disorienting to your soul. When it comes to our sins, they must be named. They must be confronted. There must be no sliding around them, ignoring them. There must be no pretending that if we pretend it didn't happen, it didn't happen. When you sin, you're guilty. Whether you ever think about it again or not, it's there. Even if you have the psychological makeup that you can forget about it, it is not gone. It's there. Asking for forgiveness. It means that we acknowledge to God we've sinned. It means we take responsibility for our sin, for our behavior, for our rebellion. We acknowledge to God that we are guilty. And we are responsible 
We reject all the excuses. Some of you were raised by parents who never said they were sorry and held out their love as a reward for your performance. And you don't say you're sorry either. And that is a devastating effect of your childhood that must be dealt with. Confessing your sin means you claim no extenuating circumstances. You refuse to explain your behavior or to accuse others. And when you do this, when I do this, every day in the Lord's Prayer, every week in worship, when we do this, when we own up to our sins, then what? Well, this is for that other group. The group who is so keenly aware of your garbage. You move forward with the assurance that your sins are no longer counted against you. The deep, heartfelt assurance that you are loved and accepted and forgiven. If it is pride that keeps a man from confessing a sin, it is pride that keeps a woman from accepting forgiveness. Whether our culture has trained us in the pride of dominance or the pride of subservience. Both require an act of faith. The yielding of humility to not only confess the sin, but to receive a forgiveness that you cannot earn. You see, there are three things we can do with our guilt, all of which are no good. We can imagine guilt where there is none because we don't have any in the first place or because we've already been forgiven. We can deny guilt where there is actually guilt. Or we can simply live as if the guilt wasn't there. Each of these can cause a variety of spiritual and psychological problems. Not the least of which, depression and anger. But in this prayer, we're taught, as you ask daily for your food, daily, Look, asking forgiveness, it's like taking the garbage out. Once doesn't suffice. I took it out last year. (laughs) (laughs) There's a problem here. Now, I know this can be really difficult. I suspect that you struggle with this on either of these two edges. Really repenting or really accepting forgiveness. All kinds of reasons we struggle with that. Pride, insecurities, habit. It it can be so painful to abandon ourselves to the mercy and forgiveness of God. But that is what we're called to do. And then to embrace in the very core of our being... The fact that if we have confessed our sin to God and trusted in Jesus to forgive us, then we are forgiven. It is nailed to the cross. Our sins are no longer held before us or over us. We are freed from the burden of our guilt. And in Christ, we are accepted and loved. And He is our Father. And Christ is our brother. 
And we can run to the table as children. Now, if you've never said about it seriously, praying the Our Father, forgiving and being forgiven, it's going to take some time. And you'll probably need help. And to be honest, that is one of the things that clergy are supposed to be here for. Dealing with the soul. That's the job of clergy. Just as good could be a friend who's wise and knows the ways of the Lord and the way of a soul. And there are books in my own struggle a few years ago with forgiveness. A wonderful book by Miroslav Volf on forgiveness who lived through the Croatian genocide was like oil for my soul. But you know what the best help of all has been for me in my own struggles with receiving and giving forgiveness? And not just me, but Millions and millions and millions. You know what? The best help of all this, it is the honest and careful and daily praying of the Our Father. It is your birthright as a follower, this prayer. At your baptism, Christ gave you this prayer. Your birthright as a follower of Christ is to breathe in true divine forgiveness day by day. And as the cool, clear air of that forgiveness fills your lungs and replaces the grimy, germ-laden air that was pumped into your lungs by your family and your society, as that happens, as you start to inhale God's fresh air of forgiveness on a daily basis, there is a good chance that you will start to breathe it out. And you will be able to forgive others. As we learn what it is like to be forgiven, we begin to discover that it is possible and even joyful to forgive others.